Hallelujah, indeed. If you're in Christ this morning, you can sing that with full integrity, right? Because of all that grace that God has extended to you. Um, I'm so grateful for Kenny and for Jesse and for the, the songs that they use to help reorient us every Sunday morning and remind us of those things that are true that we have a tendency to forget during the week. <clears throat> and uh, our memories, my, my grandpa used to say this about his memory. He said, you know, I really have a good memory. It's just that my forgetter works over time. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, I, I echo with that. Um, sadly, I echo with that on a spiritual level. I, I can understand and comprehend that God's favor rests upon me and that His grace is abundantly available to me. And I can come here on Sunday mornings and rest in that fact and sing that and worship Him for it. And I can walk out the back door of this sanctuary and within minutes be confronted with circumstances in my life where I've just forgotten everything that I've just sang about and respond as though those things aren't true. And that's not the way it ought to be. So it's good for us to come here and to sing songs like we've been singing and remind ourselves of truths. I was gripped, especially this morning, by this verse. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. I know what it feels like to feel that way, as a sinner, condemned and unclean, and wonder if Jesus can love me. And I echoed and I resonated with that, with that verse this morning as we sang it. And then we sang, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Right? That's the essence of the gospel. God doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up before we come to him. He says, come to me. I'll clean you up. I've got this. And it's only on the heels of that that we can sing this. When he returns with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. The one who feels condemned and unclean in Christ can stand before God, the maker of heaven and earth, and appear there in his righteousness, faultless before the throne. That is the grace of Christ. And if you are in Christ this morning, you can sing that song, Hallelujah, because it's a rejoicing thing for us to remember, though our sin be great, our Savior be greater still. So I'm grateful for that. And that really is the essence of Jesus' teaching, especially even here as we are in the book of Mark, making our way through the gospel of Mark and seeing Jesus conducting his ministry with the disciples at his side. And now we're at a, a pivot point in the book of Mark where now in the second half, Jesus is turning his attention from the crowds, turning his face toward Jerusalem, making his way there, and he's already explained to us at least once in chapter 8 what awaits him there, suffering, death. It is there that he will make atonement for human sins that will make it possible for people like you and me to trust him and to stand in him before the throne faultless. As Jesus is doing this, he's got his face set toward Jerusalem, he recognizes that there are some things that his disciples don't yet fully understand, that they really do need to come to grips with, because when he is delivered into the hands of men, when he is killed, when he is buried, and then three days later when he 
rises again. And then a few days after that, when he's ascended to the Father and taken off of this earth, it's these guys who are going to be given the responsibility to continue this ministry that Jesus himself started on this earth. And in order for them to do that in a faithful manner, they need to understand some things about the things of God, some kingdom realities. So as we turn to Mark chapter 9, is there anybody that needs a, a Bible? If you do, just put your hand in the air. We have Bibles that we'd love to put in your hands. We want you to read and study along with us. We're going to be studying from Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. And in these verses, this is a special time. Prior to this, we've seen Jesus talking and interacting largely with the crowds, and then he, he comes off, and, and from time to time, we'll do sidebar conversations with his disciples. These verses that we're studying this morning, his focus is solely on these 12 disciples, and he wants to teach them and pour into them and, and equip them for what is coming next. And as we do, we're going to discover as we read through this and study through this passage today that, that there are six things that these disciples just didn't quite understand. I have titled this message, but they didn't understand. And that comes right out of verse 32. And verse 32 is making reference to the, the very thing in that paragraph that Jesus was teaching them that they didn't understand. But the subsequent teaching of Jesus in the remaining verses of today's passage help us understand that there were several other things that they didn't understand as well. So as we look at these disciples and, and study the things that they were failing to understand, let's consider ourselves disciples too. If you're in Christ, you're a disciple of Christ. And let's look and examine if maybe we aren't struggling with some of the very same things that these disciples were struggling with as we read and study our way through. So let's go before the Lord and then we will commence with our study. Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you that you have given us everything necessary for life and godliness. Thank you that you gave us your son to live a perfect life and to fulfill your law, your, your, your perfect holiness. That standard was fulfilled in Jesus. And though he knew no sin, you, you sacrificed him. He sacrificed himself to make perfect payment for our sins. And Lord, you haven't withhold your spirit from us. You've given us of your Holy Spirit that we might not be left here as orphans, but that you might empower us for faithful living, for walking the walk that you call us to walk as a means of glorifying you and, and reflecting your glory on this earth. So Lord, I pray now that by your spirit, you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and that we would be able to comprehend the things you want us to learn as a congregation and as individuals today. Help us to grow as we study your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning to read at verse 30 in Mark chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. The first thing the disciples were, did not understand was that they didn't understand God's plan to secure the kingdom. Jesus was telling them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And that play on words would not have been lost on them. 
They have known Jesus to be the Son of Man. There's no doubt in their mind. They have seen Jesus conducting his ministry. They've seen him teaching with authority. They've seen him exercising authority over demons, over physical infirmities. They've seen him calm the wind and the waves on the sea. They've seen him display a level of authority that is not like any other man that they have seen. And they're, they're students of the Old Testament. They're students of the law. And they recognize correctly that this Jesus, when he says he is the Son of Man, remember back in chapter 2 when he um, healed the paralytic, he said, but so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he told the man to rise, take up his pallet, and walk. So Jesus has called himself the Son of Man, and these disciples have recognized Jesus as the Son of Man, the Son of Man in, the, in terms of the context of Daniel's description, the prophet Daniel's description in Daniel chapter 7, which reads like this. I'll, I'll begin reading Daniel 7 at verse 13, and then I'll skip to verse 27. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So they had this context in their mind as they are observing and listening to Jesus declare himself as the Son of Man and demonstrate to them that he has all this authority that Daniel has said is characteristic of the Son of Man. They didn't doubt that. But what they couldn't comprehend, what they did not understand, was this idea that the Son of Man that Daniel is talking about would fall into the hands of men. How could one with all this authority, the one to whom the prophet Daniel has said, every dominion will bow down in humble um, servitude under this one, how could he then be delivered into the hands of men? That just didn't compute to them. But that was God's perfect plan for securing the kingdom. That is the essence of the gospel. This one, the Son of Man, the one with all authority, the one who is fully man and fully God, goes to Jerusalem and is delivered into the hands of men. It's a passive verb. He will be delivered. It's not that the men actively grabbed hold of him and robbed him of something he wasn't willing to give up. It's that this Son of Man willingly was delivered at the hands of God. It's the will of God that he be delivered into the hands of men who then ultimately put him to death, making him the perfect atoning sacrifice for sin, securing the kingdom once forever. That's the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So these disciples just did not understand God's plan for securing the kingdom. They didn't have a category for it. And Jesus in chapter 8 had described this plan for them earlier. He had explained to them how much he would suffer in Jerusalem. And Peter jumps out and he puts his heart right out there and he said, no Lord, far be it that that should happen. And you remember Jesus' response to him? Get behind me, Satan. 
for you are not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man. That's how it went the first time that Jesus explains what is lying in front of him in Jerusalem. And this time, it's about the same. This time they remain silent. I think because they remember how Jesus responded to Peter, and I think because of their pride, it won't allow them to raise their hand and say, uh, Jesus, I don't think I understand what you're talking about. How many of you have ever been in that place, in a, in a classroom or sitting with a mother or a father who's trying to teach you something, and you don't quite get the concept, but your pride won't let you bring that up? Because if you ask the question, now all of a sudden everybody knows you don't get it, right? And that hurts the pride. So I think that, that's part of what's at play here, keeping them silent. But the first time, Jesus tells them clearly why they didn't get it. He says, your mind is set not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that's exactly where they are this time, too. Look what it is that's on the forefront of their mind as Jesus wants to teach them about God's plan to secure the kingdom. Verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The second thing that these disciples didn't understand about the things of God is God's definition of greatness. You see, on the way, as Jesus was wanting to instruct them about God's plan to secure the kingdom, they're busy arguing with one another about who's greatest in the kingdom. They want to be, I think, thinking about Daniel 7's uh, representation of this son of man, and it's said that, that this dominion will also be shared with the, the people of the Most High. They're recognizing that Jesus is this son of man. They're recognizing that they're among a chosen group, small group of people who has a special relationship with him. And I think they're already thinking, when Jesus gets his kingdom, we're going to have places of importance. And I wonder how high I'll be able to sit next to Jesus in his dominion. And I think they're making arguments together, making a defense for why so-and-so should be up here and so-and-so should be down here. Pretty typical of humanity, isn't it? We're always striving to make ourselves look better or to give an example of why we think we should be in a certain position of honor. And that's what's preoccupying these guys. What they didn't understand is that that is backward compared to how God views greatness, how God defines greatness. Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Greatness in the kingdom belongs to those who are humble servants. And as a living illustration, he brings into them a young child. He wraps him up in his arms. And what we don't really understand clearly here is that in this culture, children occupied the lowest rung on the social ladder. They were often regarded as not very important folks in society. So Jesus receives a young child, one who is on the lowest rung of the social structure. We live in a culture where we can tend to even idolize kids and spoil them, right? So for us, 
Who might be that person who's on the lowest rung of the social structure, social ladder? Sorry? Elderly. The elderly? Okay, sure. Elderly, maybe homeless. I mean, you can fill in the blank. Whoever it is in your mind that's on the lowest rung of the social ladder, put that sort of person in here and see Jesus receiving that one. Because that's what he's telling these guys as he grabs this child. And he says, whoever receives one such as this in my name receives me. And whoever receives him receives not me, or not only me, but the one who sent me. So when we move toward people of this humble stature, of this humble place on the uh, social structure, and we welcome them and help them feel loved and help them feel valued because they are human beings who have been made just like you and I in the image of God, that's when we're displaying the character of God. That's when we're showing that we truly understand how it is that God defines greatness. God defines greatness as those who serve humbly. So how are we doing? Do we understand this mark of greatness in God's kingdom? As we look around, as we elders look around at this congregation, we rejoice that there is much evidence that we really, really do get this. We see so many of you serving humbly and seemingly tirelessly. I think of our children's workers like Laurel Hurlbert, Daniel Newkirk, or Jan Buck, who week in and week out just love on our kids and help partnering with parents as parents are raising up kids to know and fear the Lord, partnering with them and helping to affirm and reaffirm what they're being taught in their homes. I think of our youth leaders, Hope, Andrew, and Caleb, who pour into our high school students and in a way that's much cooler than us parents could ever do, help them understand the things of God and help them receive hopefully the same things that we're teaching our kids at home. I think of our ushers, like Carrie and Ronan. They're among the first to arrive here on Sunday mornings. They're among the last to leave. They lock up the place after we've all had our lingering conversations and have enjoyed our company. They're here serving us humbly. I think of people like Vivian and Nate and Herb who serve with our ministry called Grace on Campus, taking uh, the message of the gospel to Fullerton College during the weekly ba uh, weekly basis there and just pouring into and, and living out Christ before the college population at Fullerton College. There are so many. I think of people who will partner with us after this service in serving a meal to the homeless. I think of the Grecos. I think of the Tuttles. I think of the Mitchells and the Garrels and people like that. Now, I know many more of you are serving in beautiful ways, and I haven't mentioned you by name. But just know that this is just a simple sampling of beautiful evidence that many among us get God's definition of greatness. Think about your simple one-on-one -on -one conversations in the hallway out there where you pray with one another and pray for one another and point one another to Christ. That's the sort of thing that is displaying greatness in the kingdom of God, those humble acts of service. And while we have much evidence to rejoice, we also see that we have room to grow. Our bulletin is filled with opportunities where we're looking for volunteers for Adventure Week. We're looking for summer volunteers to help with children's ministry so that our regular children's ministers can step back for a few weeks and be refreshed and step back in again at the end of summer and with fresh zeal and vision, dive back in into their humble service. 
We're looking for people to help with food bank on Thursdays and Fridays. We're looking for people to partner in one-on-one discipleship. So are we a people who views important ministry as only the ones standing up front or as only the ones gathering a large group around them and having (coughs) uh, effective ministry? Or, Or do we have a category that greatness in the kingdom is two women in the back hallway ministering to one another, praying with one another, pointing one another to Christ, and encouraging one another on in the daily life? Greatness in the kingdom belongs to servants. And in the next scene, the, the disciples, who clearly have not had a great category for understanding this, that greatness belongs to servants, they come upon another person who is a servant of Jesus, being involved in an area of ministry that Jesus has trained them to do. Look with me at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. So these disciples have been empowered in the past by Jesus to do this sort of ministry. They were sent out to preach and to heal. They were sent out to uh, cast out demons from people, and they did that successfully, and they have rejoiced over that. They have been commissioned by Jesus for this sort of ministry. And now they come upon somebody that they don't recognize, somebody that he says doesn't follow us, but in Jesus' name, this one is exercising a demon in a way that they had just failed to do in last week's passage that Kenny preached to us. And why was it that they failed? Because they did not pray. They did not depend on God. They seemed to think that they had this. So this one seems to be a faithful one. The text says here, we saw one casting out demons in your name. This one was clearly depending on Jesus. In the name of Jesus, he was casting out a demon. So he apparently is one who has come to faith through Jesus' ministry, maybe even through the ministry of these disciples, but they just didn't know him. He wasn't part of their little group, and they failed to understand that God's kingdom is bigger than their little group. And they tried to prevent him because he was not part of the inner circle, if you will. They had defined God's kingdom workers to look like those 12 and no more, apparently. And he was outside of that circle, so therefore they tried to prevent him. And do you notice how gentle Jesus is with them? He doesn't rebuke them loudly. He doesn't say, oh, how long do I have to put up with you guys? He just pulls them aside and he says, don't stop him. For the one who does a mighty work in my name will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. He helps them to see that there are people outside of their little circle that God is empowering for effective kingdom ministry. So do we get this? Do we understand that God's kingdom is bigger than our little church, our little congregation? I think to some degree we do. I really am grateful that our children's workers and our youth workers get this and want to build this into our youth early, at an early age. Uh, Junior hires and our high schoolers take a trip every summer down to Mexico, and we partner with with Mike and Angela down at Go Missions to Mexico. And we, they place us beside a, a little church down there in Baja. 
And we spend the week serving alongside that little church, either helping them with a building project, uh, pre presenting a VBS study for the kids in the area. We also come alongside of them in their evangelistic efforts and go door to door and share the gospel with people who have never heard. We've seen people come to faith through those times. We have seen God do just amazing things. And it really is a privilege to recognize that God's kingdom is bigger than us and that we can have the privilege to go down there so often, short-term missions trips, you know, we kind of get the emphasis maybe a little bit wrong, thinking that we're the ones that are going to go down there and show them how to do ministry. <laughs> but what ends up happening, every time I've done this trip, what ends up happening is we go down there and the locals show us what God is doing among them. They show us how God wants to work among them. And we are the ones that end up having our faith increased. We're the ones that end up being blessed. So God's kingdom is bigger than our little circle. Which brings up a side point. These guys tried to prevent him, and they didn't seem to get it. The good news is, is that eventually John, this one who tried to forbid this exorcist from conducting that ministry in Jesus' name, he eventually did get it. And in John, 3 John, 3 John, beginning at verse 5, John writes. Now this is, some time has elapsed from him forbidding this exorcist and him writing this, but listen to how different this is. John writes, Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. Though these people he's writing about were strangers, he says you ought to support them. They're fellow workers of the truth. God's kingdom is bigger than our little group. And as a side point, it matters. How we treat Jesus' disciples really matters. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Some humble act of simple service, a display of greatness in the kingdom, coming alongside of another minister of the gospel in a simple way as just offering a cup of cold water, brings with it a reward. God cares enough about how his disciples support one another in ministry that there's a reward for something as simple as offering a cup of cold water. Now these disciples, they had walked with Jesus. They could have offered all sorts of help to this one who was casting out a demon. Jesus said something as simple as a cold cup of water so he could have kept on with his ministry would have brought you a reward. Also the flip side of that, look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a giant millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So it matters that we support one another in ministry, but Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones. Now, it helps us to understand and think about little ones. Who is Jesus talking about here in little ones? Is he talking about this little child that he has used a paragraph earlier to denote what greatness in the kingdom looks like, to receive a humble, humble little child? I think the context helps us see that the little ones he's talking about are people who are young in the faith. This is, this exorcist, we get the sense is, is newly in Christ, 
and he recognizes he has power and authority because of Christ to perform an exorcism in Jesus' name. He depends humbly on Jesus to do this. He's young in the faith. And these disciples who have been walking with Jesus for a while try to stop him. And they could have, if they had been effective, they could have caused him to sin or caused him to stumble, caused him to think that he did not have the power and the authority that Jesus had given him to perform this ministry. And Jesus tells them, if you are doing that, if you conduct your life in such a way that causes one of these little ones, one of these young folks in the faith, to stumble, it's better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Now I want you to hear this as the words of a loving shepherd. Put yourself in that place of the little one he's talking about. He's saying, if somebody else causes you little one to stumble, it's better for that one if he were thrown into the sea with a millstone around his neck. He is jealous for the health of your faith, the health of your walk, the health of your discipleship. And he wants to protect you from other people who would cause you to stumble. But we also need to hear these words on the other side as people who are disciples of Christ, people who are free in Christ, right? It, it doesn't matter what we eat or we drink. There's nothing outside of us that going into us can render us impure before God. We have freedom to eat and to drink. But do we steward our freedom in a way that may cause our brother or our sister to stumble? Are we, as a people of Grace Fullerton, stewarding our freedom in Christ in a way that recognizes what Jesus is teaching here? That the way we steward our lives makes a difference with the total group. Disciples, that word disciple is almost always used, most frequently used in the plural in the New Testament. So any given disciple is always known within the context of a greater group. And the way we live, the way we steward our freedom in Christ matters. So people, let's, let's steward our freedom in a way that, that contributes to the well-being, that contributes to the health of our fellow disciples. Let's not steward our freedom in Christ in a way that compromises them or might cause them to stumble. And if we're to do that, how, how can we do that? How can we steward our lives in a way that's, that's faithful, in a way that doesn't influence our brother or our sister in a way that would cause them to stumble? That means we must step back and take a look at our own life. If we're going to not cause somebody else to sin, we need to make sure that we are not causing ourselves to sin, which is what Jesus is teaching here in verse 43. The fifth thing that the disciples did not understand is that disciples must take a radical stance in their own sanctification. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. It is better, he says. It's better to be lame or maimed or half blind than to be thrown into hell. Now the things that he names here doesn't sound better to me than anything. 
right? Cutting off a hand or cutting off a foot or gouging out an eye, that sounds terrible. I'm a bit accident prone and I have worked in a number of ways <laughs> in life and injured myself in a number of ways that I can identify with this. I've, I've shredded my hands with barbed wire fencing on the ranch. I have dropped an implement that I was working with on the farm that had a sharp tine and the tine nearly went all the way through my foot. I know what it's like to have my foot stabbed with something sharp. Um, I have been working and gotten a, a, a piece of metal. I've been grinding and welding and, and gotten a piece of metal into my eye. I have dropped molten metal onto my forehead. I have dripped pure chlorine that, was, that is used for the pool into my eye. I've gotten pure chlorine into my eye. All these things hurt. And Jesus says it's better for you to just hack off your, your arm or your hand or your foot or your eye than to ever cause yourself to stumble. Now, what Jesus is teaching here is not that self-mutilation is the pathway to holiness. That's not what he's teaching. Yeah, John, you don't have to cut your arm off, okay? That's not what he's teaching. So please, nobody come here missing a member of your body because you were trying to strive toward holiness. What we need to understand is that are there anything nearer or dearer to us than our body parts? If you hit your thumb with a hammer, you know, my grandpa called that hitting the wrong nail. If you hit hit your thumb with a hammer, it doesn't take you long to regret that action, right? We love our bodies. And what Jesus is saying, there should be nothing on this earth that we love so preciously or hold on to so tightly that we're not willing to get rid of in order to pursue holiness, in order to grow in our own sanctification. Because if we don't, Jesus says it's better for us to do that because if we don't, we face the fires of hell. Literally, the Greek reads Gehenna. And Talbot professor Alan Gomes writes this about the fires of hell. He says, Bear in mind that in the Gehenna of fire, the wicked will not suffer as disembodied spirits, but as complete, though corrupt, human beings, having body and soul. There is therefore every reason to expect the wicked in hell to suffer great bodily pains there. The suffering will take place from the inside out, as it were. It will arise from God, it will, sorry, it will not arise from God boiling sinners in a cauldron or turning them over slowly on a rotisserie spit, as vulgar, cartoonish depictions would have it. Rather, they will suffer the natural consequences of rejecting God and His goodness toward them, in which they will experience the pain of complete abandonment remorse unmingled with comfort and the relentless torments of their own consciences which will burn forever but never finally consume this cup they will drink to the full experiencing unmitigated pain in both body and soul that sounds terrible to me I don't want to endure that praise God that in Christ I don't have to I don't want anybody to face that. But that is what awaits those who re, whose sin remains on them. Those who reject God's offer of grace when He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We reject that and get this. So nothing is to be so precious to us that we're not willing to hack it off in order to pursue 
holiness, in order to leave behind the old man and pursue, take on, put on the new man that is in Christ. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he writes this to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace isn't just to save us from our sin. It's to save us to holiness. We are to be growing in that. A disciple, every disciple, is to be radically committed to our own sanctification. And as we grow in holiness, it is then that we can conduct our lives and steward our freedom in Christ in a way that we might not cause another disciple to stumble. And I'll be the first to admit to you that the pursuit of holiness is an exhaustive and an exhausting work. Because the ways of the world and the things of the human mind are constantly bombarding us. And it can be a tiresome thing to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And I know what it's like to to just want to take a back seat to that process from time to time and just relax, if it were. And the last thing that the disciples didn't understand that we can bank on in those situations is that Jesus is committed to the sanctification of every disciple. Listen to verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness... How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Everyone will be salted with fire. That is probably one of the more encrypted statements that Jesus has said so far in the book of Mark. Would you agree? Everyone will be salted with fire. All right, so what comes to mind when you think of that? When you think of salt and when you think of fire... What comes to mind? How do, we, how do we expect to understand this? You just throw salt on something. You throw salt on something. Yeah, salt is a, is a seasoning. It's a flavoring. It's something that when you add it to meat can act as a preservative in the absence of refrigeration, right? So, so there's that preserving aspect of salt and fire. See, Jesus' audience here... They're well-versed, and they understand the Old Testament. And thinking about salt and thinking about fire would have brought this to mind. It would have brought the Old Testament sacrificial system to mind. And verses like Leviticus 2.13 would have helped them understand what Jesus is talking about. In Leviticus 2.13, it says, You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So salt is all these things we've talked about. It's a seasoning, and it's a preservative, 
It is something that is to be added to every offering as part of the sacrificial system. And it is, it's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of this eternal relationship, this eternal covenant that God has declared between himself and his people. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now, fire is the thing that would consume these offerings that were, that were salted, right? So when you think of a fire, it consumes everything in its path, really. And Peter writes about these things, calling them fiery trials. So we're, we're thinking about being salted with fire in the context of the sacrificial system. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 12, and he says, but I, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's your reasonable service of worship. So think about being salted with fire as being a living sacrifice to God in which the aroma of Christ is arising from us as we go through this fire, as we go through these fiery trials. Listen to how Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Everyone will be salted with fire. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, that will be the outcome of what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Disciples are called to be radically committed to our own sanctification. And Jesus is committed to the sanctification of every one of his disciples. And he is far more interested, far more committed to our sanctification than in our finding any sense of satisfaction in anything of this world. And by his grace, he will allow hardship in our lives. He will allow suffering in our lives for a purpose, not as a sign that he has abandoned us or not as a sign that he doesn't love us, but as actually a clear sign to the contrary, that he's in it with us, that he's promised that he, this good work that he's begun, he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And he will use whatever means he wants to or needs to in order to bring us to that place. He will partner with us in our sanctification. He is committed to it. And when we endure suffering, we are merely following our Savior who endured suffering. The first point that the disciples didn't understand, they didn't understand God's plan to secure the kingdom. That kingdom would be secured by the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we, as disciples of Christ, endure suffering in this life, we are merely following him. And it is not a sign of God abandoning us, but it's a sign of God's promise to us that he will take us through and he will bring to completion this good work that he has started. 
And many of us know fiery trials, right? We know the fiery trials of health issues, be they physical or mental or whatever. We know the fiery trial of health issues. We know the fiery trial of relational issues. Having arguments or, or relational dysfunction in, in the home, in the family, or at, with coworkers at work, whatever the case might be. Those are fiery trials. We know the fiery trials of financial stress, joblessness, or underemployment, all sorts of things. God is committed to our sanctification, and he will use whatever he needs to use to force our dependence from whatever thing of his creation we are tending to trust and to put it back on him. And when we do, when we endure suffering faithfully, when we allow suffering to have its perfect result, where our faith is tested and tried and proven to be more precious than gold, then we are a beautiful aroma unto God as a living sacrifice. We are the aroma of Christ to the watching world, an encouragement to fellow believers, and a witness to the people of the watching world who are outside of Christ. Our God is with us and He is for us and He's committed to our sanctification. So as we think about the things that these disciples that followed Jesus in His earthly ministry, that the things that they didn't understand, the things they, they struggled with, when we consider God's plan to secure the kingdom, when we consider God's definition of greatness, when we consider that God's kingdom is bigger than our little group, when we consider that how we treat Jesus' disciples really matters. When we consider God's call that every disciple be radically committed to our own sanctification, and when we consider that Jesus is committed to every disciple's sanctification, what is it in our lives that we need to learn? What is it that we just don't really quite understand that God wants us to get today through the teaching and the preaching of this passage from Mark? Where is it that we need to grow? Is He inviting us to step out in faith and to serve in a way that might feel uncomfortable to us? Is he inviting us to uh, trust him and to step out and partner with other people from another circle in their ministry and rejoice with him there? Maybe a short-term mission trip or something of that sort? Is he inviting us to maybe change the way we steward the freedom that we have in Christ so that we don't cause another brother or sister to stumble? Is he asking us to maybe step up the game in our own sanctification, taking seriously our call to do that? Or is he asking us just to rest in his sovereignty as he takes us through fiery trials of life, recognizing that it's not a sign that he's abandoned us, but it's a sign that he loves us and he will take you through it and he will take away the dross on the way through so that what emerges on the other side is pure and undefiled. The fullness of our salvation that's awaiting for us in heaven. Take some time now and just sit with the Lord and ask Him what it is that He wants you to learn through this passage in Mark today. And after a little while, I'll close us in prayer and then Kenny and Jesse will come up and lead us in a song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving these truths that we were able to read and to study today. We thank you that 
you have accompanied the teaching and the preaching of your word with your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would allow, through the voice of the Spirit, the truths that we need to comprehend and the truths that we need to lay hold of and incorporate more deeply and faithfully into our lives, that you would accomplish that work in us now. Lord, if there are any among us who have not trusted you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would come to you. I pray that they would throw up their hands from, from the striving of trying to earn your favor and recognize that simple faith in you and you alone is what all that's required for life, eternal life. Whosoever believes in him might have eternal life. So Lord, I pray that if there's any among us today that are in that position, that you would create in them the miracle of faith and they would trust you. And they would rise up from here and walk out in the newness of life. Lord, for those of us who are in Christ and have been for a while, I pray that you would refresh us. And I pray that you would renew our zeal to live lives that are an aroma of Christ to you. Living sacrifices, living moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day, living sacrifices who worship you in spirit, in truth, in word, and in deed, in our attitudes. So Lord, continue this work that you've begun among us. We praise you that you've promised to bring it to a completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It's in that precious name that we pray. Amen.